My name is Brighton Owen, and today I'm going to read from Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Awesome. Good morning, guys. Uh, thank you, ladies, for coming and helping us out with the music today and leading us in worship. Um, if you can't tell, things are a little different than they normally would be. Uh, again, I'm not Tanner. My name is Matt. And, uh, yeah, so sometimes things happen, and we live in crazy times right now, and so sometimes we have to roll with the punches. But you guys did awesome. Brian, thank you so much for reading God's Word to us today. Um, Glad you guys are here. Um, I just, I'm honored to be able to, to look into God's word with you this morning. Um, Tanner's out sick. He and his family have been kind of dealing with uh, COVID and stuff like that. And so they're, they're staying home. Um, and so I'm stepping in to hopefully um, honor him and most importantly honor God with bringing you God's word today. Um, before we begin, I just want to have some time of prayer. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now in the world. We've got COVID. We've got crazy stuff going on in the Middle East. We've just, there's so much going on and uh, can bring a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry and, and a lot of stress. And there's just a lot going on. So I just want to go before the Lord before we even get into what we're talking about today and just pray. Uh, so if you guys would just pray with me, Lord, um, things are uh, intense right now. It seems like there's thing after thing that can pile on, Lord, but we know that you are good. Uh, you are sovereign. You are capable. Uh, you are bigger than viruses. You're bigger than turmoil in the Middle East. You're bigger than uh, hurricanes in Louisiana. Just so much it seems like thing after thing, Lord. But we know that, uh, that you can move mountains and you can do incredible things. Uh, we know that most importantly, Lord, that you have brought salvation to us, something that we couldn't do on our own. You have secured our futures, Lord, and I pray, God, that that peace would just flow through us, that it would flow through the Christians around the world, and I pray, God, that places that might not know you uh, would begin to know you, that they would know your truth and goodness and grace. God, I pray that you would just calm nerves here this morning. Thank you that uh, we have a team that's able to come together and pull things off last minute. God, I pray that most importantly, you would be honored and glorified. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I feel like 
I don't know my wife. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask this question. How many of you guys have known someone for quite a while, and then you learn something new, and it's like, I just don't know who you are? Okay. You don't have to necessarily answer out loud. Husbands, keep your hands down um, just for your safety. Um, so I've been married to Jordan now for 14 years, coming November. And I would say I've learned a lot, of, a lot of, about her. I've learned a lot about her likes, her dislikes. A lot of the dislikes involve me. Um, <laughs> things that she hates, things that she loves, right? But every now and then, she just has to switch it up on me. So the other day, she brought home a gallon, a half gallon of H-E-B strawberry ice cream. Okay? Just strawberry. Now, in 14 years really like 15 that we, because if we include like our dating time, right? I've never seen her just order strawberry ice cream or bring home just strawberry ice cream. But here we go. In our fridge was strawberry ice cream. Her normal go-to is chocolate, specifically bluebell Dutch chocolate, okay? That's, that's her go-to. But no, here we have strawberry ice cream. I felt dumbfounded. I was like, who are you? What have you done with my wife? I mean, I guess now I have to add strawberry ice cream to this list that I keep in my mind of things to get or not to get. Um, if I'm at the store and want to get her a treat. So, like, what else are you going to throw at me? Okay. Um, to be fair, years ago, I gave her an anxiety attack from buying orange juice at the store. Um, she was trying to select the right kind of orange juice because reasons. She was, she was trying to get the thing that she thought I would, I would select, right? And so um, she was going through all these different options, and she picked one and ended up not being the right one, but it's okay. There's forgiveness and grace in that. And to be fair, that was like early in our marriage, okay? I, like, I don't change a ton. I might have my, my things that I, I have, but I usually keep those. I'm not going to go and all of a sudden start getting orange sherbet all of a sudden. You know, my thing is, it's God's ice cream. It's mint chocolate chip, okay? Um, you know, when we go to Baskin-Robbins, she gets, she varies a little bit. She gets chocolate chip cookie dough and chocolate, okay? But never strawberry. And so I usually keep it pretty, pretty simple, all right? Well, all that to say, okay, there's a point to this, I promise. It's not just, we're not just talking about ice cream today. But the, the idea that we've been going through the book of Mark for a while now, okay? Um, and we've seen these disciples spend a lot of time with Jesus. But it still seems like there's this question we have to wrestle with. Who is he? Who is this guy? You know, I, I like to envision myself when I'm reading. I like to be part of these guys. I like to be in the story. I feel like it helps me draw on things. So we've been right alongside the disciples as they walked with Jesus. We've seen Jesus teach with authority. We've seen, uh, we've been with him as he healed the sick and as he raised people from the dead and cast out demons and deal with uncurable diseases and calm the storm with a word. And they're still wrestling with this because it seems after all this time with Jesus, these men still don't know who he is. And I felt like that's a question that we still need to wrestle with as well, okay? 
So, Lord, we love you. As we look into your word, God, I pray that you would reveal who you are. If there's someone here who does not know you, who doesn't know your lordship and the sweetness that that brings, God, I pray that they would. Lord, I pray that you would be uh, in the sermon today, that you would be in my words, that my words would be yours, and vice versa, God, that uh, in my stammering and in my just stumbling through this text, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that you would use it to bring freedom and joy and grace. Lord, we love you and just ask you to be here with us today. It's in your name. Amen. So as we pick up our text, right, um, the disciples have been gone for a while. When we last read, Jesus had sent his 12 out, and they were to proclaim the kingdom of God. They were supposed to teach him and, and joy and forgiveness and his truth of who Jesus is. They were supposed to be preaching out around these towns. They weren't supposed to bring hardly anything with them. They were supposed to, the message was what they were supposed to bring. That was the attraction. And now they're back, okay? So now Jesus is wanting to meet with his team, okay? And we see starting in verse 30, it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. What I love here is the tenderness that we see in Jesus, okay? His friends, his students, uh, they've returned from their mission. And he wants to reconnect with them. I don't want to read too much into the text, and I don't want to speak for, for Jesus in this, but I get the sense of excitement that he must feel, right? Seeing the growth in his friends, his disciples turning from disciples into apostles, really. It's got to be like when you run into your third grade teacher, okay? And they see that you did, in fact, turn out to be a functioning, decent human being, even if you still read comic books, okay? Or it's like a parent that gets to have their adult children over for the holidays. The parents spent years cultivating and growing these kids, and now they get to experience the culmination of that work and get to experience that joy. That's got to be what it felt like for Christ in this time. He meets them in the wilderness. So often in the Old Testament we see where God would meet his people, his prophets, his chosen in the wilderness. But he doesn't call them to give them more marching orders yet. He wants them to be with him. To rest. How many of us push and push and push and never allow ourselves to rest? No amens, just one? Okay. We are called to rest. And that doesn't mean just kicking our feet up, binging our favorite show. There is a time and place for that kind of stuff as well. But here, Christ is wanting his people with him. Okay? To spend time with him. To soak our weary souls in his goodness. Beloved, think about how much we short ourselves because we find ourselves too busy to spend time with the one who loved us and saved us, who loves us and saved us. We push and we push, and we don't take that opportunity. In fact, last night I was, uh, I was restless. I've been having these bouts of restless nights and stuff like that, and uh, the thought just came into my head. It's like, 
you know, here I am talking about this, but do I even really do that? You know, I think God's Spirit was just kind of giving me a little bit of a nudge in that moment of, you know, even when I pray, if I get up in the morning and I read and I'm doing my journaling and all this kind of stuff, it's still with this intention. It's like I have this mission I'm trying to accomplish. It's like, okay, I'm going to get through this chapter, and I'm going to try and journal, and yada, yada, yada. There's always something behind it, but how often do I go and just spend time just sitting, listening, praying, because I want to, and because it's my Savior. You know, my nine-year-old has convicted me recently uh, because she's been more consistent with getting up in the morning and reading and, and worshiping than her father has. I'm thankful for that. I don't bring that up as a brag, though I am proud of her pursuing the Lord. But it's a picture of just the sweetness of time spent in that word, and we need that desperately. Psalm 32, 6 tells us, David is, is saying, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. He's not saying, I seek the things from you. I, I, I'm not seeking healing. I'm not seeking, you know, safety from my enemies. I'm not seeking... I, earnestly, I seek you. My, th- my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We live in the desert. We know what that's like. My plants know what that's like. But here, David's not even saying, I, I need this from you. You know, Saul's after me, or, you know, my son has betrayed me, or any of these things. He's like, I just seek you. Do we thirst for his word? Do we thirst for his presence? We can't give others what we don't have, and if we aren't in the word, how can we bring it to others? It's a sweetness, it's a grace. And I think the thing is, too, like I was talking to Devante about this, like when God pushes and wells that, that desire up in us, it's a beautiful thing because he's giving us more of his heart and his desire. And there's grace in ourselves that we have to have grace for ourselves too whenever we don't necessarily feel those things. But we can also rejoice when we start to feel that longing like, man, it's been a week since I've even opened my Bible. You know, that kind of thing. Like, that's a, that's a grace that he gives us to draw, him, draw us to himself. As we pick it up in 33, now many of them saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and began to teach many things. So Jesus and his crew were trying to get some quiet time to do an after-action report, if you will, uh, a performance review. Okay, how did it go? What worked? What didn't work? What kind of responses were you getting? But the crowds were unrelenting, and they chased them down on foot, mind you, to the shore where Jesus and his disciples were headed. So most likely what happened, they get in this boat, and they're probably just going, a lot of accounts say, they're probably just kind of hanging along the shoreline, just kind of going off away from the the crowded areas. And so these people see them, and they just start following along the shore on foot, and they beat them there. Now, Jesus could have turned them away and said, no, or let's go somewhere else or whatever, but he cannot help himself. He is moved with compassion because his people are lost. 
They have traded their true God for sin and for weak imitations. Zechariah 10.2 says, like, so this is the Lord talking, right? He's talking to his prophet, and he says, For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. The leaders of the time were not leading God's people with love and truth and compassion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, There were questions but no answers, distress but no relief, anguish of conscience, (laughs) but no deliverance, tears but no consolation, and sin but no forgiveness. The book of Matthew uses the word moved with compassion. He couldn't help himself. This was like a, the word they're using right here, it's like a guttural, visceral kind of response. It goes deeper than just pity or empathy. And in fact, that supposedly, I'm not, I don't bust up my lexicon all the time, so bear with me. The word that was used here, that compassion, is only used in this instance for representing what Jesus felt in the original Greek that this was written in. It's deeper than just feeling sorry for someone. He could not stop himself. He sees his beloved that was chosen and set apart, drowning in gods that betray and destroy. So being a parent has taught me a lot about the heart of the Lord. I can't imagine the pain of having one of my kids, one of my little girls, grow up under my care and love, only to one day turn their back on me and become mired in sin and unhealthy choices. It's almost a thought that I can't really bear myself to, to dwell on for long or to, to even think on. And sadly, this is the case for many parents. And if you are one of those parents in that situation, the church is here for you. And I want to kind of make this point even before we go on. This is kind of just a little side step, a little side note here. I feel that Jesus is even more heartbroken over the situation than even you. But Jesus is also able to step into that situation and restore. The depths that a loving parent would go through to save their child is a great picture of the depths that God went through, God the Father went through for us. And he can step into that situation as well. So what Mark is doing here is, again, setting up this question of who is this? Ezekiel 34, 11 says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. He is the good shepherd. He's the one who would find his lost sheep. This is the very same Lord who made this proclamation all those years ago. And is now here to fulfill that very mission. By highlighting Jesus' response, and specifically putting in the lines about sheep without a shepherd, Mark is telling the reader who we are dealing with. 
This is the very king we need, the king whose reign would be everlasting and the king who would never leave us nor forsake us. This is the king that the books of the prophets were pointing to all along. And a lot of people who would be reading this early on would have known some of those old books as well. They could be very versed in them. And they see this line about him having compassion on sheep without a shepherd. It's going to ring a bell in their mind. And they're going to think back to Zechariah. They're going to think to Ezekiel. He's answering something here. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two, uh, 200 denarii worth of bread and give, them, give it to them to eat? So Jesus, in his compassion, has been teaching the kingdom of God all day long. He's been so on fire and wrapped up in the moment that it's now becoming late and people are getting hangry. I'm sure that wives back in the day were a lot like mine. And heaven help you if Parker or Cannon get sick or get, get hungry because then it's just over. We have to strategically have snacks, okay, um, if we go somewhere because it gets ugly quick. Parker gets to where she just cannot and will not physically move. She just crumples. Cannon just decides she hates the world. Okay? <laughs> but the Lord is not caught off guard by this. This is another moment that Jesus is setting up to reveal who he is. His disciples, now apostles, come and try and get him to wrap it up. Okay? Time to send people on, send them off to scrounge up something to eat for themselves. Apparently the crowd was so enamored with trying to get to Jesus that most didn't think to bring any kind of snacks. It seems like a reasonable request from, from his followers, right? Okay, let's call it a day, send them home to eat. And I love Jesus' response here. You give them something to eat. Can you imagine? There are thousands and thousands of hungry people. Middle of nowhere. And he says, you do it. I love it because you can cut the tension with the knife, right? You want us to feed them. They even get sarcastic with the Lord. Oh, okay, so you want us to go and spend a year's worth of money, year's worth of income to buy food for all these people real quick. Okay, no problem. Sure. Who does this guy think he is? Gives food to all these people. But this building tension is there for a reason. Because he's trying to pull out of them, who am I? It's so good and so rich. And once again, he's about to peel back the veil of reality. What we think of reality. And show us a glimpse of who he is. And he said to them, starting in 38, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups of, uh, in the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. And he said a blessing and broke the, le the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he invited the two fish among them all. 
and they all ate and were satisfied. And then they took up 12 baskets of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were fi- and, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So a lot of people like to add into this kind of stuff that just they're only counting them in just because of the time, right? So we're looking, it could be including wives and kids. You're looking maybe up to 20,000 people in this location. Now, there's years and years ago, there was a movement, in, even in Christianity, okay, forget secularism and atheism, but even within Christian circles that were trying to remove the supernatural from Christianity. They tried to explain these occurrences in naturalistic and reasonable manners. Like some scholars of this movement even looked at it as, well, there was this cave that Jesus was kind of standing in front of, and he had flowy robes, and the cave was already filled with food, and so he was just kind of had people behind him handing him stuff as to pass out. In his book, Miracles, my friend C.S. Lewis attempts to highlight the necessity of the supernatural within the gospel. He states, a naturalistic Christianity leaves out all that is specifically Christian. We cannot simply overlook and explain away these miracles. Now, plenty of people were following Jesus simply for these miracles. It had been quite a show. Demons being cast out, dead rising to life, storms calmed, and now a free lunch. But to stay service level is such a disservice to what Mark is trying to underscore here. Again, Lewis tells us that each miracle writes for us in small letters, something that God had already written or will write in letters almost too large to be noticed across the whole canvas of nature. So who is this man? This man is God. This is God-made flesh who has come to be the king who would not abandon his people. This is the bread of life come to sustain and nourish our weary souls. He is viscerally compelled to show compassion to his people who turned away from him. Even to the point of serving them, the bread of life is serving those who need this nourishment. After he prayed and began to hand out food, it was even more than could have been asked for. Twelve baskets of leftovers. The number 12 is used throughout Scripture and usually signifying the original 12, I can't speak, 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Y'all try saying it. God's chosen people. What Mark is telling us is that God has come back for all those lost sheep from his chosen people in order to bring them home, to bring those sheep back to himself. If we go way back to the book of Exodus, way on back, okay, so... Israel, these, these people were held captive in Egypt for many, many years, 400 years. And finally they have Moses come through the power of God, saves them from this slavery, and they're marching around the wilderness, right? They're being led through the desert, and they become hungry, as one does. They have nothing to eat, and they're beginning to grumble and long for the days when they were slaves in Egypt. They had food. It says like their, their meat baskets were full, but they also had yokes around their necks. Moses went before God and was like, how am I going to feed these people? And then God steps in. He says in 1612, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. 
Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That's what we're mirroring here with this miracle we see of Jesus feeding these people. God steps in. He provided for those tribes then. The same very 12 tribes that Christ has now come for and is providing food for. Mark is saying without question that this is the Lord. The same Lord that walked with his people in the wilderness is here to be their good shepherd. The focus isn't on the miracle itself, but what is it pointing towards? What is it bringing up within us that we have to wrestle with? What is it bringing up that we have to question? Now, I didn't mention this earlier, and I wanted to hit on it now. In Mark chapter 6, if y'all had been walking through this with us, we have two very different feasts back to back here. And there's a, a reason why I think Mark put these two shindigs so immediately after each other to contrast them. We learned a few weeks ago that Herod, he was like this puppet king in Israel, right? So the Romans were in charge. They had authority, but they allowed Herod to kind of step in and be this kind of puppet king, right? And so he had this feast. He was putting on a party for all the governors and military leaders of the time, and it was this wicked affair, okay? Lots of just debauchery and drunkenness and just you name it. And what I think Mark is trying to get us to look at here is the contrast between the two feasts. So Herod's feast was for the nobility of the region, those in power. Christ welcomed the poor, the destitute, the unwanted, the sinners. Herod's feast was to boost his own ego, assert his own power, to lift his name up. Christ looked to his father. Herod's feast was full of hedonism, debauchery, Christ, his feast was all about prayer and worship. Herod's feast ended with the execution of an innocent man by the king. So if you remember, John the Baptist was in prison at the time. And Herodias uh, was having this affair with Herod, which sounds weird because their names are very similar, right? They're basically the same name. Anyways, uh, John the Baptist was always calling him out on it. Well, eventually, Herod gives in and has John executed. Christ, the innocent king of kings, would soon be executed by sinners in order to make sons or rebels into sons and daughters. To save his lost sheep, this good shepherd would later be with his people in a desolate place, this time on a hilltop. Only this time, instead of giving them bread to fill their bellies, he would give them what their souls really needed. He would take their sins upon himself and bear the punishment for their rebellion. Who is this man? The men who spent every waking minute with Jesus still didn't get it. They'd start to get a grip on it. They'd think they were starting to peg him down, who he was, and then they'd lose it. Here we are in 2021. We've got the luxury of all these written texts. You can whip it on your phone real quick. You don't have to get some huge scroll and unravel. We have God's very word, and we still have to wrestle with the same question. Who is he? Is he God made flesh? Is he the I am we see in Exodus? Is he 
the one who spoke creation into being? If so, do I treat him as such or do I have him take a back seat to my own false gods and my own desires? Looking at the text, we have to hold on to the, point, the importance of these miracles, the miraculous we see here, because the very things these miracles are pointing to is reality itself. They're pointing to God. Without these wonders confirming that this man is indeed God in the flesh, we lose what makes Christianity Christianity. The notion of taking away the miraculous and claiming that Jesus was just a good man and a good teacher actually really contradicts itself. If he was simply this clever guy or this swindler that could trick people into believing these things, then he was no good moral teacher. He claimed that he was the Lord. And even these scriptures that we see about him claim that he was the Lord. His acts support that claim with an exclamation point. The whole basis of the Christian faith is that it was God that stepped down into our reality and took on flesh in order to become the fulfillment of the law. He took our punishment we deserved. We were helpless. He had to do it himself. Just like how in Exodus, God says over and over again that I would do this. I will do this. Let us not cheapen the scriptures by overlooking or writing off the miracles we see Christ perform. But let's also not just see Christ as this entertainer, somebody who can do fancy things and make neat things happen. Let us look into the works of Christ and see what they are. They are glimpses into the awesome and holy nature of the one who has called us and saved us. Who is Jesus? What are we going to do about it? The scriptures are pretty clear. They really don't leave much doubt, any doubt. So where does that leave us? What are we going to do with that information that we have? What are we going to do with it today? Tomorrow isn't guaranteed. This good shepherd is still seeking his lost sheep and wants to show you that same compassion that he showed the crowds that day. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that uh, your power and your, your spirit was able to make sense of this, uh, this sermon. Lord, I pray, God, that it would hit home. I pray that there would be freedom. Lord, I pray that if there are people here that don't know you as the good shepherd, Lord, that you would meet them where they are, that you would give them boldness to reach out and, and ask for help on what that looks like. What does it mean? I have these questions. I don't know what they mean, but I need help. Lord, I pray you would give them boldness. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us where we are. You didn't leave us as lost sheep scattered and left our own devices, Lord. But you, the I am, the one who's existed before all, stepped into our time and into our world and into our, our darkness, Lord, and brought this light and brought us what we truly need. God, I pray that you would just uh, continue to call people to you. Call your sheep. I pray that they would heed your call. You are so good to us, Lord. And I pray, God, that this time of worship would just be a blessing to you. That would be just sweet 
It would be a sweet offering. Lord, I pray that you would just be glorified and made famous here in our church. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.